This is the Windswept and Interesting podcast, all about the outdoors, and I'm Richard Baines. Today's guest is the chief executive of a conservation charity who, in the last seven years, has made a name for himself as a passionate advocate for nature in Scotland. Trees for Life is perhaps the cheeky younger sibling of some of the more venerable NGOs battling for a greener country, and Steve McElright is its beating heart. He's recently seen a big expansion of the Findhorn-based charity, doubling its staff and pushing it into new areas. So while I was on a trip to Murray, I decided to find out more about the man and his vision. If you like this chat, by the way, you can subscribe to the podcast, and I'd love to hear your views on it and suggestions for future episodes. Have a look for my handle at Scott Nature Corps on Twitter and send me a note. I caught up with Steve at his appropriately sylvan home deep in the countryside, where we sat in his optimistically named summer house in the garden to escape the rain. I wanted to know how frightened he was while working in Malta, why he took on the Scottish government over beaver shooting, and whether a brand new multi-million pound rewilding centre is a bit of a contradiction. And also, if the term rewilding itself has had its day. Steve kicks off by telling me a bit about his life. I was born in West London in the 1960s and I lived in a town called Southall in the sort of Ealing West End of London. I had quite a difficult childhood to be honest with you and in order to escape all of that I used to go out on my bike and cycle around the Grand Union Canal and that's when I first kind of got in touch with nature and it has been an important part of my life ever since really. I went off to university and studied botany and zoology and then gradually got into conservation, worked down in Bristol at the Avon Wildlife Trust for a long time. Worldwide Fund for Nature, or WWF UK, or whatever it's called, um, Council of the Protection of Rural England, where I learned how to be a campaigner. Then, about 10 years ago, went off to Malta for a few years and worked on spring hunting and illegal bird killing over there. And after three years on the most crowded island in Europe, I needed a place where there was space. So we came to Scotland and I started to work for Trees for Life. Friends at school used to call me like nature boy. I just used to like nature and I still do. It's just always been there. So why Scotland? A bit random really. Uh, we, we wanted to get out of Malta because three years of running a high profile campaign where you are constantly recognised. I mean, nothing like what Chris Packham's been going through, but that bad really, you know, called insults in the streets, people stealing stuff off your Facebook and things like that. We just wanted to come somewhere quiet we wanted to come back to the UK. We really didn't want to be in England because of the politics down there and something came up in Scotland. So it's all a bit random, but I wanted a job that was really positive. After three years of hard campaigning in Malta, not winning really very much, um, we wanted to do something, be somewhere really space, spacious and where we could do something positive. Yeah. I suppose Malta isn't the safest place to make yourself unpopular with uh, some of the local ruling class. No, no. I mean, I used to go for a walk in the mornings near my house. I lived in the country and I've had hunters shoot over my head to try to intimidate me. You get threats and, 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 and attempts to intimidate you in a country like that. And you realise you're never going to win in a corrupt nation like Malta. I mean, we're bad enough, but Malta is pretty shocking. Yeah. And that was trying to stop people doing all the wild bird shooting that they do. Yes, which yeah. is absolutely shocking. I yeah. mean, I was not prepared for how outrageously disgusting it is to be honest Richard you know we lived in the country a hundred meters from our house there were people shooting at four o'clock five o'clock in the morning 
shooting starlings. I'd had injured starlings brought to my house. It was just insane and crazy, you know. And a, a shame on the EU for not coming in and dealing with it and using some of the powers that they have. You know, I almost became highly Eurosceptic having lived in Malta, but then I also realised if we didn't have, have the EU and what the EU was capable of doing there, it would have been so much worse. It would have just been slaughter in the skies, tenfold worse than it was. So you came to Scotland in 2016 and you came here as the first Chief Executive of Trees for Life. That's right. So the board had been uh, thinking about where the charity need, needs to go and our founder, Alan Watson Featherstone, had a really compelling vision of restoring the Caledonian forest, the forest that should cover much of the highlands of Scotland. Uh, and they, I think they wanted somebody to come in and be able to start to realise that vision and try to figure out how the charity can have the level of impact that it, it wanted to have. And, and that's what the mission's been for the last, gosh, is it seven years now? How do we scale up an organisation to, to, to make it really contribute to what, what, it, what it believes it needs to do? That's been, that's been the mission, I suppose. So Trees for Life is there to restore the Caledonian forest. Beavers, some might say, are here to chop the Caledonian forest down with their big incisors. But you've been a big champion of beavers. Yes. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about why that is. So Trees for Life has always championed the idea of rewilding. It's always said that a forest is more than trees, that it's all the animals and different plants that should live there. And beavers are part of that. They're, they're a river, river animal, but they interact with wood. They chop trees down, as you say. They build dams with it. They have a huge impact on the ecosystem. And actually, uh, we had been preparing, and Alan, our founder, had spent a lot of time actually preparing Glen Affric for the return of beavers. So planting the right sorts of trees next to the locks and the rivers in, in Glen Affric so that they'd have the right sort of habitat. So beavers are part of the whole ecosystem that we should have in Scotland. So why wouldn't we champion them? They should be there. And actually, they don't kill trees, generally. The trees that grow next to rivers, and they only take trees from about 10 metres next to a riverbank, are usually pre-adapted to regrow after they've taken them. The fact they haven't been in our landscape for hundreds of years means that there are a lot of trees that they, they do unfortunately kill because they're not the right ones. But actually, trees and beavers can interact and interact for the long term. So things like willow would be yeah would be fine with them. Yeah, willow, aspen, hazel, even you know trees that kind of naturally you will grow up, grow up from the roots once they've been gnawed at. Your enthusiasm for beavers runs to challenging the Scottish government over their licensing of beaver shooting. But some people might say, well, we have to cull a large herbivore that's growing in our landscape, which doesn't have any natural predators. And there was a bit of the jumping on the cuddly bandwagon here. You were always going to get backing from people who don't understand how the countryside works to prevent the shooting of beavers. What's your kind of response to that? Trees for Life had been working to try to see if we can get, could get beavers reintroduced into the Glen Affric area. As soon as the Scottish Government said they're now a native species, they're here, we, we started a consultation, tried to figure out if people would welcome beavers back into that landscape. And then when the Minister at the time, Rosanna Cunningham, put the blocks on beavers being moved around <laughs> proactively to reintroduce them, we just did not think that was right. And one of the consequences of her decision was that beavers were being culled, they were being shot where they were causing problems. And we felt moving beavers to places where they could do good, they wouldn't do damage, where they might be welcome, would save beavers' lives. And I'm as cuddly wildlife loving as anybody else. I don't see any problem with being a, a cuddly wildlife lover. That's me, that's my life. But the purpose was, if we could stop them being shot, 
we could then get them moved to other places where they would do good. So from an ecological perspective, they need to be in our landscape. And what a waste of life to have them shot when they can do good somewhere else. I remember the shock. It was my story originally that revealed that the 87 had been shot in that first mm. nine months and that the, the reaction was pretty, pretty strong. Mm. Yeah. And so um, you challenged the Scottish government over that. There are a lot of non-governmental organisations, charities, which I find are very reluctant or somewhat reluctant to criticise or challenge the Scottish Government. I believe it's because they do contractual work for them. Trees for Life doesn't seem to care about that. Well, we think we can have a mature relationship with government and we can work with government when it's in our mutual interest to do so. For example, Scottish Government have provided over a million pounds for the construction of the Rewilding Centre. They've given us grants from the Nature Restoration Fund before and after all the controversy over beavers. Um, so I don't see that there, there really is a conflict. If you have a mature relationship with government, you should be able to criticise them and if necessary, hold them to account legally when they are doing wrong, in our view. But also, where you have common ground, you should be able to work with them. So we're not afraid of that. And I think it's a big shame that many NGOs in the environment, uh, environment sector are frightened of government. I honestly don't think they need to be. I think the government does get it. Okay, you might get the odd phone call asking what you're doing. And one of the things that shocked me when I came to Scotland sometimes was quite how on it the Scottish government were on onto things that you were raising. So we raised some concerns about Caledonian Pinewoods. We talked about the situation Pinewoods were in when we launched a project. I got a phone call from a member of government asking me, what are you doing? We're trying to do something about Caledonian Pinewoods, which we know you care about. Get to a point of a mature relationship and, and you have nothing to lose. You only have things to gain. And if it came to pass that we lost funding or we felt that we'd lost funding or support because the Scottish government had put us on the blacklist, we'd stand up and say so. So we, we, there's, we have too much to do, too much to fix to be afraid and, and it, does, it does upset me and make me feel sad that other organisations don't feel like that. And you're aware of other organisations doing this as, as I have become? Yes, I, I get reluctance to rock the boat sometimes and um, I get reluctance to be challenging, I get reluctance from other NGOs to kind of step up and I, I feel, to be honest Richard, there are organisations that were better placed than we were to step up on beavers and they did not do so and I think that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one. Yeah. I, can, I can understand their fears but they need to think it through better perhaps, I don't know. Yeah, and I suppose having lived and worked in Malta where the government, you knew the government was against you, you knew the government wanted to bring you down and even in Malta, BirdLife Malta who I work for were funded by the government we had nature reserves that they had given us leases for. So even though you knew they didn't, they did not support or even agree with what you were trying to do over bird hunting, where even in Malta, where you had common ground over nature reserves and the protection of, of birds uh, outside of hunting, they were with you. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a complicated relationship with government. It doesn't, it's not a black and white one. Right, well we mentioned rewilding there. Is it still a useful term? Some people are questioning whether it's the right thing to say because it, it puts people off, it puts land managers off and it's not always a, a, a popular concept like that. But it's in fact, it's, it's just, it's conservation and nature restoration. Should we not be using those terms instead? Absolutely not. We should be using the rewarding term because it's challenging, because it's forcing us to think differently and because it's about change. 
So I got involved in conservation back in the 80s and I worked for something called Avon Wildlife Trust. And the word wildlife back in those days was an anathema. The idea that wildlife was British and the idea that people in urban areas could go into nature reserves and enjoy wildlife was like the other wildlife trusts that surrounded us were going, well, these people in Bristol are nuts. And now everywhere you see wildlife used as a term to celebrate nature and to celebrate people con people's connection with nature. And I think in 10, 20, 30 years time, rewilding will have that same meaning. It will be about nature's return and our coexistence with nature, our willingness to kind of allow nature do, to do its thing. So it is a change and change requires different language. Was the Avon Wildlife Trust a bit of a pioneer then? I wasn't aware of that because I was in Bristol in the 1980s and that area. Yeah, yeah there, were, there were a group of organisations that formed in the very early 80s. Uh, there was Avon Wildlife Trust, London Wildlife Trust, uh, the equivalent of the Birmingham version. And we were all organisations uh, that wanted people to come and enjoy nature. So back in the 60s, 70s, it was all about putting up fences and protecting what you've got. So the original Wildlife Trust put up fences and didn't really encourage people to, to, to go and enjoy their reserves. And they were all about the rare wildlife. And then all these urban groups appeared and they were about celebrating foxes and hedgehogs and, and, and tawny owls and saying, come and enjoy this because this is here for everybody to, to, to be a part of. And that was a, that was a change in mindset for, for the Wildlife Trust movement. And now every wildlife trust has projects for people with learning disabilities, mental health projects, stuff that's exactly about people and nature and their relationship. So it was a bit pioneering, yeah. I, I do remember the, the, the surprise of finding the Avon Gorge and Lee Woods and all that kind of thing. Right in the city, you could walk to it from your flat. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. well, um, I did my master's degree on the, the rare plants of the Avon Gorge and I, I lived in Clifton, which is the, now the posh part of Bristol, used to be rare all the renegades lived at that time and I could walk from my house and in 10 minutes I can be on the cliffs of the Avon Gorge uh, looking at rare plants that only grow there in the whole of the UK. It's amazing, that's, that's urban wildlife on, on my doorstep. You know? it, is, it is amazing isn't it? You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast. So how soon does Steve Micklewright think we can bring back the links to Scotland? Stay listening to find out. We'll be back in one minute. Right, so that's rewilding. We're, we're in favour of the term rewilding. Dundregan is a new rewilding centre, but it's been built in the wild landscape of Glen Morriston. Isn't there a bit of a contradiction there? Well, it depends. Uh, we've owned Dundregan for 15 years and we've been rewilding it for 15 years, and it's a 10,000 acre estate. Until we built the rewilding centre there, barely a thousand people would visit a year a lot of them were volunteers and some of them were locals coming for a walk now we've built a rewilding center we hope that many more people will come and enjoy the, the land there and learn about rewilding and become a part of the movement so i think places need a focus they need a place of that can convene discussion and change and involvement and the rewilding center is all about that and we haven't built it in the middle of pristine Caledonian forest. We've built it on the edge of the forest, we've sited it quite carefully and I think it's a place that will do good for the cause of rewilding and we've landscaped it and we've developed it so it will eventually sit nicely in the landscape and wildlife and nature will come to the rewilding centre. Uh, I think that's better than having no facilities at all, nobody can enjoy it or if they do come and enjoy it there's no sense of what is the right place to go to where you can kind of manage visitors. So for me, uh, it's a small patch of our ground that I hope will make a big difference for rewilding. 
I gather some of the work on the estate though has been funded by selling the carbon that you're storing there. The idea of selling carbon like that has been questioned for its impact on the landscape and its impact on land ownership. Is that a good thing to be doing to, set, to be selling the carbon? One of the things about Trees of Life is we're just highly pragmatic as an organisation and we need funds, to be honest, Richard, to do what we want to do. And we can sell carbon on the carbon market. But what we do is we, we sell that carbon at a premium price because we are not just selling Sitka spruce trees, we're selling natural forest regeneration and we're selling biodiversity coming back. And one third of all the money that we now make on the carbon goes back into the community to to deliver community benefit. So what we're trying to do by example is show how the carbon market can invest in things that are really good that make a difference and that you can charge a premium price for that happening. So I hope we're, we're sort of pioneering how a good carbon market can be because otherwise it's the wild west out there where people can pay for uh, carbon which is really not good for the environment. So how do we create something that people are going to want to invest in that's really going to make a difference. That's where we're trying to get to. So you're hoping that the sort of the, the new green lairds, as it were, will come and look at what you're doing and think, hmm, we can get a slice of that and that will actually have a, an environmental benefit rather than just planting acres of Sitka or whatever. Well, that's what we're trying to do in our landscape that we call Afric Highlands. So Dundregan sits in the middle of 500,000 acres of ground that we are trying to work with all the landowners to rewild. And our story with them is come and work with us, come and figure out how we can together start to rewild your land. And one of the benefits of that is on your bottom line is after you started to rewild, you can get some natural capital investment. But our big condition is you'll get a premium price, we think, if you work with us, but a third of the money that you make goes to the community because otherwise we're doing the same old, same old is the, the people who have wealth are getting wealthier and the people who don't have wealth are not benefiting. And we don't think that's how rewild, the benefits of rewilding should be divided up. They should be divided up more fairly. And um, what, what kind of buy-in have you had from the, uh, the neighbouring estates? There are some NGO estates which I think will be on board with you. And Forestry and Land Scotland, I think, is on board with, with, with the African rewilding thing. That is a, a really quite a big deal, yeah. that 500,000. 500,000 acres? Acres, yeah, the yeah. size of a small country really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and it's a huge tract of land which I know reasonably well. Um, the buy-in, is it, is, it, is it working? Are you getting people on board? Yeah, uh, we have a large number of private estates signed up. Um, we have, as you'd expect, all of the other NGOs, RSPB, National Trust Scotland. Uh, we're starting to onboard more and more of the private landowners. Do you know who we're waiting to sign on the dotted line? Forestry and Land Scotland have yet to sign on the dotted line uh, about this. Oh, because they're involved with the beaver interest. I, I assume they were, they were involved in... I think it takes these government agencies rather a long time to even sign a very basic memorandum of understanding and a partnership agreement. But once Forestry and Land Scotland sign up, and I'm sure they will very soon, then we'll be able to announce how big this partnership has become. It's quite impressive, I have to say, but I really can't say anything so until... So we're waiting for some news. We're waiting for Forestry and Land Scotland to sign the agreement. I'll be waiting with... Which makes me think Forestry and Land Scotland must be quite a big sort of partner for your organisation. You know, they're, you're an NGO promoting trees. They're the government organisation that supposedly promotes trees. Good to work with? Usually, yes. I mean, I have to say so. We've, we've worked with them since we started. I mean, 1993 is when we became a charity and all the original work was done in Glen Affric uh, with forestry. You know, we work hand in hand and we work very closely together and we still do. Um, 
In terms of beavers, yeah, we're working with them to try to figure out how to get beavers back into Glenafric with the consent and support of the community. That's a big thing. Uh, we're hoping that they'll jump on board with Afric Highlands as well and become the big, one of the biggest landowners, well, the, the biggest landowner in that landscape on boarded as well. Um, but working with government agencies, you have to learn a bit of patience sometime because it can take a bit of time for people to sign up and do things and make change happen. Yeah, I must admit, my experience of um, Forestry Land Scotland, Forestry Commission as it was, etc, etc, has generally been pretty good, especially yeah. the staff, really, really helpful. And things that they do, such as the, the mountain biking centres in, in the south of Scotland, great. They're really, they're really into benefiting communities. Yes, they are. And, and um, they're really keen to ensure that communities are on board with what they're doing. And on the beaver one, that's a big one for them because, you know, there is controversy around beavers. So there, I, I guess they're feeling the tension of, you know, we know we need to do this for biodiversity, but how can we try to ensure that the community is on board as possible? And I think we're getting there. So we're talking about co communities there, and, and one, of the, one of the ideas that's being promoted in some quarters is that um, rewilding ownership by NGOs, buying up big estates, um, and, and for instance the deer management plans on, on NGO estates um, can be problematic for communities. Um, what's your response to that? So I guess if we were to buy an estate today, we would do it quite differently to how we bought Dundragon, which we own outright, we bought that in 2008. If we were to look at ownership, we would want to do that in partnership with a local community, a bit like Langholm, you know, it's been done very much as community-led. I think we would want to go there with that one. In terms of are we bad for the community, if you look at some of the things that happen when you do rewilding, you see more jobs. It's a simple thing, you know, Rewilding Britain did a survey to figure out what happens with jobs when you rewild and generally you get 50% more jobs than were there before. In the case of Dundragon, when we bought Dundragon there was one person working on the land, that was a deer stalker. Now there are 28. Eight of them work on the land, 20 of them work at our, essentially our, our hospitality rewilding centre. So we've brought jobs into that community and a lot of the people that work at the rewilding centre live around Dundragon in a really remote rural community. So I hope that benefits the community as well. But yeah, I would agree. Land ownership in Scotland is, is, is a mess and needs to be sorted out. But I think we live within the rules that exist. And what we're all about is encouraging landowners like us and like the people in Africa Highlands to think about the community and try to figure out what they can do to benefit it. Because we can't change the rules. The rules are the rules. But we can try to influence how we use uh, our our land landowning power for, for greater benefit. Bringing staff into a remote community can sometimes put pressure on housing actually, can't it? And we're Is that a struggle? Yeah, we're feeling that at Dundragon, to be honest with you. Yeah. So we've brought in, there are now 28 staff. We are finding that we've managed to recruit quite a few people that are already there locally, but we've got a chef arriving from London uh, shortly him trying to find homes around us is going to is going to be difficult we're going to try and help with a bit of temporary accommodation but yes housing uh, in 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 communities that are hopefully reviving are starting to be kind of repeopled if you like it's a big issue and we need to do something about that is there anything you can do directly on your ground as far as housing is concerned for the communities we're thinking about that actually just now so we have an old steading uh, which is we thought well we have an old steading and we're gonna it's currently used for storage we plan to build a big shed which is better suited for storage and what we're going to do with this old steading and we actually think about do we need to provide you know, accommodation on our ground um, for people 
um, it's a bit lady, you know. Here's here's my here's my here's my people. Here's your but, tied hands. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I don't. A bit of me doesn't like that. But pragmatically, there isn't enough accommodation where we are, and we we need to figure out how to do something about it. So, I suspect we're going to start to speak to people at Highland and Islands Enterprise and, and different organisations about how can we do something so there's enough housing for 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 people that want to live in and live and work in that landscape because there's not. And, and housing for people like uh, the young people working in the, in the hospitality industry and probably at your rewilding centre, people, young people wanting to come and work there, probably for a, a relatively short period. And then they can move on to sort of more grown up housing. Yeah. It, but it's a, it's a big issue, isn't it? it yes. Is, it is a big yes. issue in these yeah. places, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 You're well at it with the weavers. You've got your rewilding centre. What's going to be the next big thing for Trees for Life? Where, where do you see it going? So, so Africa Highlands is the, is the big thing that we want to make work in, in terms of landscape scale. Uh, <laughs> My tongue was in the wrong place there, wasn't it? I'll keep that bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Uh, anyway, no, so Africa Highlands is the big thing that we want to do in terms of landscape scale change. If you think about rewilding, I think there are three things you need to do. You need to work at scale. It's great having a bee border in your garden and I've got a lovely meadow in my garden here, but actually it's when you do work at scale, big scale, that, that nature can make a comeback. The other thing is connectivity. How do we join all this up so nature can move around and respond to climate change? And the third thing is about ecological processes. There are things missing from Scotland that mean we're always going to have to intervene. So there are no top predators, there's no links here. And I suppose the next big thing, if we can pull it off, is a trial reintroduction of links. Uh, I feel that we're on the journey there, but I don't know who, I think the jury's kind of out on it, but we've started that process. Can we see links back in five, 10 years? That's the big, the big challenge, I think, getting the missing back. The links is, is very controversial. I've just been doing some stuff about white-tailed eagles, mm -hmm. which are kind of agreed now there is a sheep predation problem. Um, how big an impact that has is what's really being debated now. Um, and there is quite a lot of fear amongst sheep farmers, livestock farmers, about what lynx might do to them. How do you counter that? Yes, and I, I understand that concern. And w the process that we are going through includes working with those interests to try to figure out i think we've identified sort of six potential problems and barriers to links reintroduction of which sheep predation is an undoubtedly the number one concern now you look at the science and the evidence it says that it shouldn't be a problem really because lynx like to live in woodland they're, they're secretive generally lambs and sheep don't live in woodland so they shouldn't come across each other but i mean we, we're on the edge of a forest where i live and there are lambs in the field next door and lynx would happily live in the in this forest where we are now so you can see there is a concern they'd be, look, they'd be looking out they'd be looking mm, out that nice, tasty. nice tasty sheep so is it a problem it it could be an issue so how do you figure out how to resolve it i think the the route to go down is a trial reintroduction where the trial includes trying to figure out whether this sheep predation issue is big and whether it is something that would uh, affect whether we would welcome links back fully into Scotland. That should be part of the trial. Um, my view on that is if we want wildlife back as a country, we have to be prepared to, to pay for it. And I know the idea that the, the traditional way is to actually pay farmers compensation for the loss of sheep. They do it in Norway. They do it in Norway, they do it all over Europe. But I quite like the, the American model that where they pay farmers to have the missing on their land. They pay farmers not for the damage that beavers do, 
They pay farmers to have beavers on their, their land. They pay farmers to have links in their area. I think that's a better model because you're incentivizing coexistence rather than incentivizing a problem and dealing with a problem. But that's brave. And that, thing that to could do. be a model for white-tailed eagles, yeah. it, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. got yeah. white-tailed eagles flying over my ground. I should get a, I should get a, a, a subsidy for that. Yeah. I should get some funding for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that might, would make them kind of an asset to have. I've got them now. I get my my grant. I haven't got them this year. I don't get my grant. Yeah. How likely do you think it would be that the Scottish government, as we see it today, will dip its hand in its pocket for those kind of schemes? That's a good question. I don't, to, to be honest, I'd like to think that... The, the, I think uh, we could both have a chuckle about that <laughs> long, can't we? I, 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 I'd like to think the door is more open to that thinking than it ever has been right now. Yeah. But there are vested interests that just want farming to stay as it's always been and that, that farmers are paid or, in my view, subsidised for, for, for food, for growing food in very marginalised habitats sometimes, in marginalised ground. So it requires a significant change in the mindset of government to say, actually, we should be paying for what we want. And what we want is nature to recover as well as food. And the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can have both. So, so why, why won't they go for that? It's the vested interests knocking on the minister's door and saying, we want this. And they're a powerful lobby in Scotland. There's also a shortage of money. I had a long conversation with Lorna Slater last summer in which we broached the subject of how we pay for nature restoration and it was all about private finance yes yes is that going to work it can help can't it so natural capital can help us if we uh, lead on a linked reintroduction i'm absolutely certain that the government will not allow it through unless we can demonstrate that we have found the funding to compensate farmers or however we try to reward farmers for having links close to them i'm sure the scottish government won't agree to, 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 to funding any any support any support scheme for farms so we're going to have to find that and that's okay while it's a trial absolutely fine to try and do that but when they become an established part of our landscape part of coexisting with nature is taking people on a journey and supporting them in this transition so you what's this, what's one of the Scottish government's buzzwords just transition don't know a bit of me doesn't know what it means but what I think it means is you don't end up with what happened to the miners in the 1980s you actually help people to move to a better a, a different place a, maybe a better place but they're not just thrown on the scrap heap that happened in kind of South Wales where half my family are from so that for me is what just transition is and just transition includes wildlife and nature so Nature needs to be able to thrive. And part of that just transition is enabling those people that aren't used to having, say, lynx or beavers on their ground to get used to it. And that requires funding. It requires support while they go through that. And eventually, in my view, we'll be looking back in a few years' time about beavers in particular, and we won't be thinking about the problems. We'll be thinking about, well, the beavers are here. Isn't that great? Like we do ospreys, like we do some of the other nature that's come back to Scotland. Unfortunately... I've got, I've got in my mind now this picture of sheep farmers on a picket line, <laughs> <laughs> which you know we could end up having. It. If we don't do it right, we could have you know that kind of that, not quite that, but we could have a, a battle on our hands. Well, that's part of the debate, really. It's yeah. just it's just being prepared to listen to the other side. And sometimes, if the other side is as as we tend to be kind of treated in this way as kind of two different things, if the other side are are getting more of what they want, as I hope we are with beavers, to, to take that with good grace and then work to make it happen. That's the switch I'd like to see in the, in the National Farmers Union Scotland, 
this is this is a decision that's been made let's work together to implement it so you're not constantly trying to say let's just grow food because of the food security problem but let's learn to live with beavers and enable our members to to, to be a part of that that's i think where where they need to go and that's what we've tried to do you know we've tried to listen around people's concerns around beavers for example and and, and finally we talked about the future for trees life what about you are you going to stay there till till the bitter end till retirement or are you going to have you got any other ideas uh I, th I hope to, yes. I mean, I really love what I do and there's a lot still to be done. I get bored, Richard, so as long as I'm not bored and there's a new challenge, I'm here for the long term. And I'm old now, I'm 60, so um, I'll be retiring at some point. I can't picture that happening, but, you know, this is a great country, great potential. We're, we're really doing well, I think, in Trees for Life right now, so I wouldn't want to let go of that readily and unless actually it's my time and somebody else needs to come in and, and do that job and there's always a time when actually you have to say to yourself, somebody can do this better than me now but at the minute I hope the team that we have uh, with me as the CEO are the right team to kind of deliver change because that's what it's all about. Thanks for listening and remember you can review, subscribe or send me suggestions. My Twitter handle is at Scott Nature Corps.